My guest today is Ethan Mitchell, a teacher and essayist based out of New Haven, Vermont. Ethan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We know each other from Not Back to School Camp, where you have worked a long time, perhaps longer than I have. And I think we met in 2007. Does that sound correct? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. And you were also the editor of my most recent book. Uh, but we are here not to talk about camp or the book, but instead your work. And specifically, you write this incredible newsletter, which I consider this sort of underground communique, that this PDF only thing, like it doesn't exist on the web. There's no social media presence whatsoever. And you call it the Hebdromedary. And yes. It, uh, go ahead. Named, named in part for a, a camel who recently died up the street from, from me. <laughs> and, and you expound on, on many different things in the newsletter. You, you issue secretive rewards that come in mason jars. And, uh, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but uh, something that we want to talk about first is a survey that you've created that you want people to know about, a learning journeys, learning journeys survey. What is this? So this is a survey. Um, uh, it's actually sort of combines two concepts that I've been thinking about um, and have worked on in the past. They're sort of trying to build up um, better empirical information about um, people's sort of personal experiences of education in their lives which is something that unfortunately we don't know a lot about. Um, it's something that we talk a lot about, but especially in like the unschooling world, um, uh, there's a lot of claims and assumptions about how people's experience of education affects their like ability to learn, their desire to learn, their passion for particular topics. Um, but it's not something that we've actually studied very much. Um, and I'm also interested in drilling down on people's particular interests and sort of what resources they found very useful. So I'm hoping that right now with a lot of people in quarantine, um, there'll be some willingness to take a survey that might take 20 or 30 minutes. Um, most some people get through it faster. And uh, I thought now is the time to try to get that out there. So we'll link to the survey in the notes for the podcast. And I took it, it take, took me about 10 or 12 minutes. And I encourage everyone to take this survey because Ethan's gonna turn all this data into something magical, I can guarantee you. Um, Okay, let's circle back to the hebdomadary. This newsletter uh, has been coming up for a couple of years now, and it, it, it's a limited run newsletter. The, the edition numbers keep decreasing. And can you briefly mention why? What's gonna happen once we get to zero? We're at about 84 sure. right now. Where, where did it start? And, and what happens when we get to zero? It started at 144, um, and uh, that was based on um, on two things. One is on my sort of general sense, which actually I wrote about in, in the newsletter, that a lot of projects, um, you know, all projects at some point end, right? And I think there's a lot of projects that actually waste some time and energy by kind of pretending that they're not going to end and they're going to go on forever. And, um, and so they don't manage to put a nice bow on it at the end. I figured I had about 144 um, issues worth of interesting stuff to talk about. Um, or would come up with that along the way. And that by the end of three years or so, which is 144 issues, um, I would be sick of it. And I would want to move on to other projects, including maybe some projects that uh, emerged in the process of writing this survey. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're about halfway through at this point. And in just the past 10 newsletters, uh, here are some of the topics that have emerged. Uh, 
I wrote these down in now they're in alphabetical order. Activism, archaeology, Black Lives Matter, the body politic, the broken window fallacy, confidence intervals, COVID-19, crime statistics, cultural appropriation, the Dresden firebombing, Elon Musk, eugenics, evolutionary biology, freedom of speech, John Stuart Mill, Kropotkin, Leninism, mechanical looms, Milton, the Natchez Rebellion of 1729, parenting, Plato, poison ivy, public art, selfies, social Darwinism, statistics, Summerhill, teaching over Zoom, the purple blossom of Gingham Mountain, theories of apocalypse, Trump, unschooling, and something called Zip's Law. That's just 10 episodes, or 10 installments of this newsletter. When you put it that way, it sounds like a fairly broad um, uh, mix. Well, it is a fairly broad, it's an incredibly broad mix. And it's like one of the most stimulating things I, I have the pleasure of receiving every week. And the fact that you have, you know, something on, uh, you have a, a two digit number of subscribers for this newsletter blows my mind because it, each of these needs to be like somehow framed and, and hung in some local gallery. Um, but you're not out here to like maximize your followers or to create some online name for yourself. Like, why did you start writing this newsletter? Well, you know, I'm I'm sort of a pretty compulsive writer. I write, even if I don't have a project, I'm probably writing two or three pages a day. So um, um, I in the past, like one outlet for me for that has been blogging. Um, and, you know, there was like a sort of golden era of blogging. And I found it actually really, like, it was fun. Um, it was nice. It allowed me to sort of process my thoughts in a formalized way, which for me is like a big, point of the essay process. Um, but it also was like having this fully outward facing, like, you know, I would, I would write a blog entry on some historical topic and I would just get like responses from people who had probably hadn't read it and like, but really like were angry about like, you know, stuff that didn't even like seem relevant to what I was writing. But, um, so that I found definitely tedious and it, it wasn't, you know, really what I was looking for in writing. What are some of the, I don't know, the things you've written about through this newsletter that really stand out to you? Like something you really enjoyed having a chance to share with with other people and, you know, just getting a chance to to really elaborate on something that you find interesting. What are the standouts? So I guess there's sort of three things for me that are going on in that, like you have this whole list of like topics that appear to and are kind of unrelated, but in my mind, some of them are kind of related. and so. The first thing I've really enjoyed is like I have fun writing just like taking a little topic like the um the purple blossom of Gingham Mountain right that that's like uh, a particular instance of this weird little genre called Badman yells from the you know like the old West um, and something like that just you know it's, I'm not really going anywhere with it but it's just fun right? it's like like I want this to be better known um, so that's one thing um, and then there have been so far in the newsletter will be again a couple of times a few articles where there's like an intense research process and where I want to be able to um, sort of push the article in the direction of maybe I'll take it to a like a peer-reviewed journal later on um, and the, one of them that you mentioned in a couple of different ways there is the the poverty point piece which involves both uh, a historiographic element coming out of the Natchez Rebellion, um, but also like a mathematical 
angle and like looking at these uh, archaeological artifacts through a statistical lens. Um, like for me, that was like a really interesting project and it's an interesting ongoing project. And it's something where I feel like uh, like a lot of personal investment in seeing, seeing that project through. Um, and then the third piece is like a lot of the articles here that have to do with activism or social movements or education or things like that, like in my mind are all kind of interrelated. And, and I hope that in, you know, the next 84 issues, I'll get to make a case for that and like work that thought into a more coherent, you know, braid. I, I feel like even at this moment, there may be people who are listening to what you're saying and just categorizing you as like super smart person who lives on a different planet. And I, first I want to know, well, later on, we're going to like get more into your life story and, and figure out how, you know, such a categorization of you could even be made. But, but do you feel like that's, that's accurate? Do you, uh, I'm going to jump ahead to a question I, was, I thought I was going to ask later. Like, would you give yourself the title of, of being a, a polymath or an autodidact or, or something like that, a, a curious weirdo? Uh, how would you even describe yourself as a, as a learner and a, and a gatherer of, of knowledge? There's a line, I think it's in a, I want to say that it's in Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle, where someone like says to someone else, like, I hear that you're a self-educated maybe, or, a, or an autodidact. And they respond like, well, isn't everybody? And, um, and I don't know, I have a bias in that direction. I think like, ultimately we are all like, we're all self-educated in, in different ways, including the context of schools, right? Cause you, you can go to a school and learn nothing unless, you know, you're there to, to do that. Um, I describe other people as polymaths. So I guess poly, like polymath isn't a dirty word. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't feel like I have a sort of CV of particularly strong accomplishments in any one field to be like, okay, yeah, I can point to this and this and this. Um, but I've definitely like, I've gone wide rather than deep in a lot of areas. I've tried to go deep where I can, but, um, but wide has been my, my direction. Yeah. This is making me think of Grace Llewellyn's term, the glorious generalist, which she you know, wrote about in the teenage liberation handbook. I feel like that definitely applies to you. Um, okay. I, I think I did once get a 1099 labeled me as a general specialist at the, <laughs> which I was very proud of. It wasn't really true, but it was, it was a good thing to put on the wall. <laughs> All right. Let's get back to the beginning here. Let's get to some basics. Like how old are you? Where are you based? What's your, your family status? Like just the. So I'm 44. Um, I'm married. We have a daughter who's four years old and um, my wife is Susanna. My daughter is Lucretia. And I live in, this is, will sound very traditional, like, like old, old school. I live on the farm, the sheep farm where I grew up in Vermont, um, in a house that's now about uh, 180 years old, total disaster of a house. And on this farm also, there's several buildings. So my grandparents lived here for a long time. They've passed away. Um, in that house, my sister's family uh, lives. Uh, they just moved back up here actually during the pandemic which I, I hope by the time this episode airs, like everything is totally peachy keen and we're all like going back out to get pizza, but I kind of doubt that will be true. Um, and my parents live up in the other house and we have a, um, a fourth building on the farm. So right now we're in the really luxurious position that we were able to bring in a babysitter 
quarantine her for two weeks and now she she has a space that she can live um and so we have some childcare on the farm which uh is i'm aware extraordinarily privileged comparing compared to like everyone who's like stuck with their toddlers in a third floor walk up in manhattan um and like no kitchen um and during the course of the of the school year in the past uh my grandparents house has been used as a preschool so on a farm with its own preschool sometimes um in rural vermont with some sheep and some chickens up until last week and uh a pond and woods and cliffs and mountains it's what happened to nice. the chickens well i don't quite know but it all happened in one night i think it was probably a raccoon <laughs> no um, and I visited your farm before I've stayed there and that's right. what stands out to me beyond, the, you know, it being beautiful and a nice old building was the number of books inside the house, like a, a truly <laughs> shocking number. How many of those are yours and how many of those are Susanna's and how many of them belong to other people? Uh, well, it's about 50, 50, but you, you, you threw in other people, probably maybe 49, 49 too, but, um, there are a lot of books. There are a lot of books. Um, you were, you were, sorry, Blake, you visited us in the middle of the winter, right? Yeah, that's right. Right. So I should say we also have like a decently sized orchard and this year we have a pretty good sized garden. That was probably not, you know, very evident in the middle of the winter. Okay, so you're a man of the land and you're also a man of the mind. Uh, let's find out about how you've made money. I wanna quote something from one of your hebdomadary uh, newsletters, uh, you say, I've done many things for money, chopping down sections of the Amazonian rainforest, lying to old women, changing the shape of rocks, contributing to the general cesspit of misinformation on the internet, greasing the algorithmic wheels of hedge funds, filling out Nielsen surveys, embroidering customized obscenities on lingerie. I definitely want to hear more about that one. Uh, hiking up Glastonbury Mountain to confirm for the U.S. Census that the logging camp abandoned in 1900 was still abandoned in 2000. My CV includes the dubious, disgusting, impolitic, and illegal. Oh my. Yeah, that, that's all accurate. <laughs> Tell me, uh, how, how. just maybe start with in the past few years, how have you been making money? So in the past few years, actually, I spent most of my time um, running around with Lucretia. I, I would mostly describe myself as a stay-at-home dad, except my Susanna works from home. So, um, so usually, rather than being a stay-at-home dad, I was like a take Lucretia into town and get her out of Susanna's hair dad. Um, so I've done a lot of that okay. in the last little while. Um, I've also worked in a nursing home. I have um, uh, edited your book. I have uh, done a lot of, um, I do a lot of teaching both at, in an outdoor ed program um, at the local public high school. And um, I, I tutor homeschoolers in the area. I don't, it's not exactly tutoring because we have, a, we meet in a group. Um, and what else? Well, let, let's, yeah. let's push it a little bit farther back now, maybe yeah. the last five or 10 years, especially the, the obscenities on lingerie, please, please elaborate. <laughs> so some of this will go back, uh, has to go back pretty far because okay. I, I had like a long chunk of time taking care of my grandparents um, in their uh, decline and other family members who were um, in poor health, but um, uh, which is, you know, work, it's just not paid work. The, 
Um, yeah, so the lingerie, there's a local, like there's a local company. It's a large company, actually. The Vermont Teddy Bear Company purchased a pajama company um, that uh, has customizable pajamas, but it's actually mostly like customizable, like low-key lingerie. And they have for Valentine's Day, they have this like major surge operation where they, they hire like a whole lot more people for about a month. Um, and they work through the night, right? And um, and the the stuff that the stuff that guys want to have like embroidered onto the pajamas that they're gonna give their girlfriend or whoever they want to be their girlfriend runs like into pretty disturbing territory. <laughs> um, that's all I'm gonna say. And then there's this other crowd of people who like like their you know creep behavior would be to call the the company's like phone line where. You know, you have people who are used to listening to like sleazy stuff being like, you know, typed into uh, a form for the embroidery. And then the guy calls and is like, okay, you're spelling this the wrong way or whatever. But their thing was just to like have that interaction with the person on the phone and then hang up and not pay. Um, so this is a strange, strange operation. What about chopping down the rainforest? I, um, when I was fairly young, I worked, I stayed in Bolivia for a while. I haven't traveled in the way that you have traveled in this, like, like uh, um, uh, sort of constant, like, nomadism. But I have gotten to travel a little bit, which has been wonderful. Um, and in Bolivia, I worked very briefly, a few months, um, two months, I think, in a, a gold mine in uh, the Tibuani area. And we would do, I think, we would do six days of, like, mining and then a seventh, the seventh day shift. There was no time off, right? But like the seventh day shift, we would go cut down ironwood trees to use as the props in the mine. It's a very old school mine. Um, and so we were out, you know, chopping down the rainforest, like people discuss. And working in a gold mine? Yeah. Oh, I, um, <laughs> it was great. How did you end up working in a gold mine in Bolivia? I was kind of interested in mining since, since always. Um, and... Yeah, so that was like the question from that maybe, you know, some of your listeners might be wondering, like, how can I go work in a gold mine in Bolivia? <laughs> um, and I had that question at the time, and it was felt sort of daunting. Like, what's the hiring process like? And I remember this, my, my Spanish wasn't that good at the time. Um, and I remember going, uh, the whole gold mining area is very, like, fascinating. Culturally, it's quite different than... Um, the surrounding culture of Bolivia, which is also very fascinating. Um, and I remember going in and going to like the, the hiring boss there. And this is a very old school situation, you know, with like a company store and you get paid in company script and like they do everything possible to make sure that you don't leave with any actual mm -hmm. money. Um, and I was like, can I work here? I need some money, which was true. I didn't have any, I didn't have enough cash to get back to the airport. Um, and he was like, well, have you done any mining before? And I sort of shrugged and I was like, I have arms. And he's like, well, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you at this point? Um, 19 or 20. Okay. All right. Um, let, let's jump over to hedge funds. How did you end up working yeah. with hedge funds? Um, I, I worked uh, doing research for a small Vermont hedge fund manager who was trying to put out a book um, about uh, the techniques that he was using, um, which were very um, 
maverick techniques for for modern finance which was why i was interested in the first place um he was interested in me we knew each other but he had seen um some economic writing that i had done and i think more than anything else he was like okay so this person you know can string some words together coherently um in this field and so we put up he put out this book and in the course of that um we published we developed some algorithms and actually published a, a paper based on some of those algorithms in Greenwich Quarterly or some journal like that. Um, and uh, it was fun. It was a very, very like non-mainstream uh, finance, which was an interesting place to, to be. But it also just wasn't a world that I was interested in, in pursuing. Yeah, and some people might be thinking gold mines, hedge funds, this guy's just, uh, he's all about money, but. Oh yeah, I, I, not, I, I, I know that's not you. Jobs in a way. <laughs> um, yeah, the interesting thing about gold mining really is, is that um, the obsession with gold in those areas is such that like a lot of other um, sort of social norms get, get dropped because the, the idea is like, oh yeah, everybody is absolutely here for the gold. There's no, you know. Uh, there was no sense of like solidarity or uh, or even like there were ways in which it felt like a less prejudiced, socially like prejudiced part of Bolivia than other places. Because Bolivia can be a fairly conservative culture in some mm -hmm. regards. That wasn't true there. And I think it was partly not true because there is this bottom line assumption that everyone was just trying to find like a huge gold nugget and then like run for the hills. Let's continue with your story. Uh, what's yeah. your exposure to, to formal education? Did you go through normal public school? Did you go to college? I went to both public and private schools as uh, a young person. Um, I was a I was smart, but I was a poor student in a lot of ways, and I really uh, like found it emotionally difficult to be in schools for reasons that you know I look back on as an adult and I. Like I have to respect where I was at that time, obviously, but um, but sometimes I wonder, like, okay, you know, like, what if things had been like a little different? You know, if, like, I'd had um, teachers who I, you know, had a better rapport with, or, or whatever. I mean, I might have had a different um, trajectory. But um, I wound up going to a then rather new private school for most of my high school career. Um, it was. An interesting experience because it was a very small school. So while they had some particular ideas about how they were going to do things, um, they didn't have enough people involved to really like override parental desire. So if the parents came and said that, okay, you need to do this math class this way or whatever, they pretty much had to roll with it. Um, and two of my friends and I, in our senior year, we were sort of disenchanted with the school, and we went to the administrators and we said, look, you're going to let us. Um, uh, study independently or else we're going to leave and you don't want us to leave because you don't have enough students and they agreed to that so our senior year i was essentially unschooling though i didn't know that term um and then i was accepted to swarthmore but i was at that point done with my like wanting to be in a classroom and i wound up attending swarthmore for one semester after taking a gap year and traveling um and then i left i went and worked it i did carpentry for several years uh, in baltimore um, and I, I haven't been back in like, I've taught a lot. Uh, they're not usually in a classroom situation. 
Um, but I really haven't been back to school since then. Okay, so you, you're doing carpentry, a little bit of gold mining in Bolivia on the side, and you're not in college, but you are still learning clearly. Like all of this hebdomadary material had to come from somewhere. So my next question is, where did your informal education begin? And how do you even classify that? Right. Um, I was raised here here uh, in a pretty intellectually stimulating environment. Not, I mean, it's, it's actually, if I were to go into like it, in a lot of ways, it's kind of absurd. My, my grandfather was a scientist. He had retired here. Um, my father is an author. My mother was a social worker who had gotten into state politics. They were all idea people. Um, and they all spent a lot of time bringing in like other people who were very interested in ideas. So my whole childhood, I was surrounded by adults who liked to think and talk about thoughts and read books and surround themselves in books and so forth. Um, in, and in a range of different fields, art, science, philosophy, politics. Um, and I had posed myself in high school and carried through after I left school uh, a pretty large reading list. In, in retrospect, it wasn't a very well-organized reading list, but it was, you know, um, had quantity, if not quality. <laughs> um, and it had a lot, of, a lot of books that, of course, I'm really happy that I read. But, um, but it did make me think, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, what do you put on a list like that? Right? If it's like, what's your life list for reading or for learning? Um, and at the beginning of that list, in a way, you don't know, you don't have the depth of experience to know what should go on a list like that. And as you start to read or learn stuff, your tastes are going to change too. So that list is going to change. Like, so um, the learning journey survey in part, I'm sort of asking questions about like, what, what did people find really useful? Because I think if we could improve those lists for people, that's, I mean, not lists necessarily, but like that well of um, resources, that would be great. So you read a lot of books. Yeah. Great. And this was in the 90s, I assume. And so this is kind of... Well, I was in high school in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. So this is pre-robust like robust internet, pre-Google. Uh, and so was a lot of your education in your early 20s, let's say, just reading books and then getting inspired to read other books? Yes, that's true. I mean, I was sort of an early adopter for the internet in some respects. But yeah. as you said, there, were no, there weren't really good search engines early on, um, which was kind of like, this is probably a grumpy old man position, but I feel like there were certain advantages to that. Um, it meant one thing that I see differently, like with my students today is um, there's not necessarily a long kind of emotional experience today uh, for most people of, I have a question and I don't know the answer to the question. So I'm trying to come up with a way to get that answer, right? For most people today, that's a matter of seconds or, or like a minute or two. Mm. Um, like I have a question and then I instantly have an answer. Maybe it's wrong, but like I have an answer. Um, and, but before the internet, right, you had to sit with all of those questions for a long time. It's like, I have a question. I can go to the library on Thursday and then I need to find a book that has the answer to the question. I don't know how I'm going to do that. Like what, I don't even know what topic this question falls under. Like, so there was a lot of like sort of thinking about how to solve a problem uh, in a way that got very much more streamlined, which is wonderful, right? But, um, but it, it does cost a certain experience. Mm. And I feel like a lot of people, especially today, but I think perhaps forever, have trouble 
imagining themselves just sitting down with a pile of books. You know, they get bored, they get distracted, uh, they get demotivated. And I think a lot of people need some sort of social accountability to like get through books. And perhaps that is, you know, the, the large value add of a liberal arts college education right there, just the accountability of like, yeah, you're going to read this book because someone is expecting you to talk about it. Um, and in your case, it seems that you were able to plow through a lot of these books and stay motivated. Um, uh, but I guess I don't know, did you have a form of social account accountability? Did you have a group of friends? Did you have some sort of salon that you were going to? Or was this really like a, a one-man show? You know, I, like, I've always had friends and I've always had like, like sort of communities that were in, in my life that were involved in ideas, but it was for the most part, especially early on, if I think back to like my twenties, um, it was like, there wasn't a lot of external accountability. Um, and I agree that, that that's not ideal and it's definitely not ideal for most people. I, I kind of, I grill my students a lot cause we've been on zoom for like the last four months. There's a lot of attrition on zoom. People don't like to take classes on zoom for obvious reasons. Um, and I often ask people like, why are you here? Like, you know, you're listening to me like talk about, you know, I taught a chemistry class. If you're listening to me talk about the rare earths metals, like you could go like, watch a video, probably like someone knows more about it than me, like, and there'd be nice graphics. And very much the answer that I kept hearing was, well, we're here because we want classmates, right? Like we want other people who are gonna like see us learning and see us like changing and hold us accountable to like studying and that sort of stuff. Um, and I do think like that's, a, that's something that, Unschooling, for instance, has not really had a good, good answer to like the we want classmates question over time. When mm -hmm. um, I mean, not just unschool. There's like, I, I know someone who uh, grew up in the outback and went to like a school by radio in the outback. Um, and it's the same problem. And, like, like, you're listening to a radio broadcast, but you don't have any peer group. Okay, so moving through your twenties, um, getting closer to recent history. Did you continue to mostly learn through reading? Did what were your other sources of, of, of I don't know, just like getting inspiration for for new research areas, new rabbit holes to go down? I think from my late twenties, maybe it would be accurate to say that, like in my early twenties, I, I, I had these reading lists that I put a lot of energy into creating and holding myself accountable to reading stuff on them. It wasn't just reading lists. I also like, there were other skill sets that I was trying to drill in. Um, from later on, I think it became much more organized around particular projects. Like I would start writing something often in like an essay form and it wouldn't necessarily be an essay that I was hoping to uh, publish um, or like show to anyone. It would just be like a way of, of organizing thoughts so that I would kind of highlight like what I needed to go learn. Mm. Um, that was true with, with coding too. Sometimes I would start coding projects and I'd be like, Oh, like I really can't like do this the way I want to do this without improving my math skills in some way or my like, understanding of grammar or like, whatever it happened to be. Um, so the projects became teachers in a sense, like I would, you know, sort of externalize this project in my mind. It's like, okay, I have to learn these things in order to complete this project. Mm. What are some projects that stand out to you in this time period? Things that, that were hard and, and you learned a lot from them or you, you found a new direction, perhaps? I spent a lot of time um, with the sort of intention of creating maybe a, a 
semi-fictionalized uh, like book, which I eventually abandoned. Um, but researching particular family lines um, in in Europe and North Africa, and that was for me a real like education in the the nitty gritty of going after historical documents, um, doing like archival work, doing trying to work in documents where I didn't read the language, um, and dealing with like the basic problem set of you know historiography that is like historians are dealing with, and especially with more social history of dealing with people who necessarily, you know, weren't necessarily that famous. Um, so that was one. Um, and uh, I think like writing different algorithms including like natural language parsing algorithms and financial like trading algorithms that are that are you know live trading um really was a big exercise in thinking about statistics and thinking about like uh math and like how to speed up uh math problems and and also thinking about grammar and meaning and language yeah what's on display in your newsletter is like an extremely strong grasp of math and statistics, uh, an extremely strong grasp of history, also uh, political philosophy. And you also, yeah, you, you have these primary documents, you, you have these photographs and these, these quotes and these pictures that are, it's like most people don't even know how to find this stuff anymore. It's like, where do you even go when when you were, uh, when you were writing about the excuse me, the, the poverty point um, study. And you were showing off these pictures of these different archaeological artifacts. Where did you even get those photos? Please tell me. <laughs> um, those are scans from documents that I physically have that I got by writing to, uh, you know, archaeology bodies in Mississippi who, um, you know, for three bucks will send you a, a pamphlet and they're excited to do that because no one has asked them for it in like 15 years. Um, <laughs> and, and I do think, you know, like, like there's not a lot of friction to doing that. It's like a, like five buck, four day turnaround situation, but the speed of the internet does, I think, work against primary documents. And it's something that, that I really lack. Like one thing that I'm sorry, that it's something that, um, I feel like the speed of the internet has worked against primary sources and it's a big failing. Um, and you often see like in news reports, uh, if you look at like different news reports of the same story, right? Uh, you'll see like the same pull quote in every one mm. because, because clearly the journalists involved have like only read each other's stories. They haven't gone back to the primary interview, even though that, that, you know, is probably available very easily. Um, but the idea of like, okay, I need to respond to the current event, like in the next 25 minutes, it like makes for a pretty shallow depth of writing. Mm-hmm. And you talk in history about like primary sources, secondary sources, tertiary sources, but a lot of what you see, you know, on social media is like a nine bajillionth source of, <laughs> it's been digested so many times down yeah. to nothing. Yeah, a repost of a repost of a repost yeah. of someone's poor interpretation of a, yeah. an article. Um, when do you feel like your your self-directed learning was at its peak? Like when were you on fire? And and then I'm gonna ask the opposite question. When do you feel like there was a big lull or a slowdown? Um I don't know if I'm on fire, but I'm feeling pretty good right now. I, I'm happy with the trajectory of a lot of 
the ideas that I'm working on. Um, the quarantine in this extremely cushy environment that I'm quarantined in has been like a pretty great uh, situation for getting some work done. Um, but there's no, there's not, you know, the community is very small, not as small as most people, but um, there's 10 of us on the farm. Three of, three of us are very young. Um, and I've been in communities that were much more intellectually stimulating. Um, when Susanna was in graduate school, that was like a pretty amazing scene. And um, I worked in, in Chiapas for a while and the international community in Chiapas was really interesting. Um, uh, but yeah, like I'm, I'm feeling good now. You bring up an interesting tension here. I think a lot of people imagine that if you want to be surrounded by a thriving intellectual community, you need to be in New York City, you need to be in Berlin, you need to be, you know, in London. And and you're on a farm, a sheep farm in Vermont. Uh, you're, you know, how, I guess this comes back to that kind of social environment question. And, and I think what intimidates a lot of people about the idea of uh, autodidactism is like, I, I don't know if I can do this all myself. And so how has this worked out for you in terms, I'm recircling to the, the do you have a, an intellectual community question and how much do you feel like you need one? I think that for me at least, but I, um, there's sort of two facets to that question. Like the one thing about the city, you know, if you're in New York, if you're at Columbia, you're a lot of people I would think in their college years or their graduate school, uh, if they do that route, um, are surrounded by this really inspiring intellectual community. And that can be found in other places too. If you're an artist, maybe you go to like an artist colony and you meet like you meet your people and you're like, that, those are inspiring moments. Those are not necessarily great moments to do work, right? And I feel like the, the inspiration and the uh, like getting work done can be two pretty different categories. Mm. Like, living on a farm with nobody around and great food and a garden and, you know, like no problems. Like that's a great place to do work. Um, it's not necessarily all that inspiring, but maybe you coming in with some inspiration from somewhere else. Um, and, and by contrast, I think like I've seen a pattern, I think a lot where people who are in highly inspiring communities where there's like a brilliant, you know, lecture going on every evening and so forth, get into this FOMO situation where they can't get anything done because they're being inspired all the time. Um, <laughs> and so true. So there's like two different, you know, uh, phases maybe. Yeah. So where do you go? Maybe not right now. Where historically have you gone to find your inspiration or how have you, yeah. When you're feeling like, okay, I've had enough quiet time on the farm. I need to go out there and get some new ideas, see the world a bit. How have you done that? Um, earlier, like in my, in my 20s and 30s, uh, I think I had more desire to like go be somewhere else where um, there was a crowd of people that you know, I was going to meet and uh, it would be totally new faces and new ideas and so forth. And I still have that hunger, but... Um, but right now, what is working for me, and to whatever extent that it's working, is um, I'm in Vermont. I I teach, so like I get to process a lot of my like thoughts in the teaching process, and then I go to camp once a year. Um, not back to school camp. Not back to school camp where we met. Yeah. Um, and for me, that is a pretty inspirational community. Um, it's not necessarily a community where. Um, 
where everyone is working on big ideas all the time, but certainly people are receptive to that. And mm. it's not, it's not seen as like betray to like want to start a conversation about ontology or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. I have had that same benefit come from not back to school camp. It's, it's a very fertile ground where, where people are open to, to anything. Like a lot of teenagers are coming there to be inspired to get mm -hmm. kind of, you know, have new topics thrown at them. So. And uh, definitely and a place where you, you don't necessarily want to be trying to get some work done. Yeah. <laughs> the, the last place. Cause it's too right. fun. It's too great. Right. Doing exactly. nothing else. Um, Let's dwell on not back to school camp and on unschooling in general. Um, what roles have you held at not back to school camp? I've been an advisor and um, been a cook for the last few years. I've basically been a cook, and I've also been the guy who tells you not to step in poison it. <laughs> Weren't I you also a, a, a dish queen, or am I? No, no, I, I uh, completely avoided doing dishes at camp. For <laughs> Another, another great thing about summer camps in general, you can play your cards right and never do a dish the entire summer. Yeah, Just it's get, great. Get fed meals. Um, okay. Um, how did you get into the, the not back to school camp world and the unschooling world? Because I imagine that there are lots of people who are, are polymaths who just love soaking up information, but they never even brush up against the world of unschooling or it feels too counterculture to them. So how did you enter into this? Um, I, like I said, I had left school or made the decision to leave school and, you know, what was essentially unschooling without knowing the term before having been introduced to, um, Grace the Well. And I was familiar with some earlier, like, de-schooling literature, like Evan Illich. Um, but, uh, but I didn't know about Grace. My cousin, I think, sort of turned my sister on to the James Liberation Handbook when it came out. And, um... And my sister stayed in school, but uh, passed that book on to me, more or less in the gesture of like, here's a book about the thing that you're already doing. Um, and I contacted Grace with the hope of, um, of bringing her to give a talk in Vermont, um, which she wasn't able to do. But then she remembered that email exchange when she was moving camp from, I believe, West Virginia to Vermont in what must have been 2006. Um, and I had never heard of the camp. I only knew her through her, her writing. And she said, oh, but I also have this camp. Uh, would you like to, uh, I don't know anyone in Vermont, basically, would you like to come see <laughs> that? And I was like, sure, I'll do that. Um, and that was actually a very transformative moment for me because I remember it was at that camp. I had not very, I hadn't had much experience teaching, a few workshops and things. Um, and at that camp, I remember having people come up to me and say like, you should probably teach. Like even maybe you, you can find something like reasonably cool. It might not be like some unschooling center, but like find the coolest thing near you and uh, go teach there. And I was like, oh, okay. Like you're telling me that and you guys uh, are all out of school. Then maybe I should take that seriously. Mm -hmm. So um, for me, that, that project was Walden and I have been teaching. I've been at both places ever since. Um, Walden actually just had their socially distanced outdoor closing ceremony last night. And can you mention uh, what is Walden? Well, the Walden Project is exists. Uh, it's an outdoor education program based around um, the book Walden by Thoreau, uh, and it is under the umbrella of the local public high school. So, um, so there, you don't have to tuition in. So it's available to people at a, like a, students who wouldn't be able to afford going to a private school or 
wouldn't see themselves as being able to afford homeschooling probably. Um, but who are in different ways disaffected with the high school and don't want to be inside it. Were you also involved with North Star in Massachusetts? I've taught maybe two classes at North Star. Uh, we lived briefly in, in that area. Um, and I was involved at the Pacham Homeschooling Center in Montpelier for, for a few years. So you've mostly worked with teenage unschoolers, kind of like I have. Right, yeah. Yeah. What Can you share any general impressions you've developed over this past decade and a half of working with with unschoolers? And I guess let's just talk about teenagers. Um, and I'm especially interested in what have you seen to be like the, the grand possibilities for unschooling? Like the moments when you're like, wow, this person is doing something so incredible that they really probably wouldn't have been doing if they were stuck in school. And then later we'll talk about what are the potential pitfalls or the, the blind spots of unschooling. Sure. I might sort of, those might weave together a little bit. Um, I feel like over the course of the time that I've been working with unschoolers, which is now you know a decade and a half, um, there's been some kind of a uh, there's a shift in um, the way that that group sees itself and maybe who is involved. Um, and with that, has, there's been a, a shift in sort of the the opportunities. Um, for one thing, you know, 15 years ago. There were, I mean, I don't know if North Star existed at that point, but there were very few centers that were taking unschooling as a model and trying to sort of organize or institutionalize it in some way. In fact, I would say that like, Grace's camp was one of those. It was like a place where unschoolers would sort of congregate to have a slightly more organized and social uh, interaction, but it was only once a year um, or twice or three or four times a year, depending on the situation. Um, and at the same time, I feel like my recollection is that in, you know, 2006, a lot of the people who were coming to camp, a lot of the unschoolers I knew were people who had um, pursued self-directed learning somewhat in spite of their, uh, of their parents' wishes. And that was, um, that was maybe even more true for the staff, the staff who were unschoolers who were slightly older. And I would say that that's less and less true today. And we've had the, like, Grammatically, we have a shift in usage to like today you hear a lot of people saying like, like my parents are unschooling me uh, rather than like I am unschooling um, and unschooled takes a much more transitive verb form. Um, and so my guess is that over the last 20 years or so, like as unschooling has become a better established pattern, we're seeing both like more institutional support for that pattern, which is wonderful, and also like a shift in like, okay, this is like a thing that you can do to your kids. Uh, which is um, better than a lot of things you could do to your kids, but um, but also seems like an interesting challenge for the, for the movement as a whole in trying to maintain a sense of like having autonomy and self-direction being major values. And I'd like to throw out there, as I have many times on this podcast, that you were the one who came up with the idea, as far as I know, of consensual education or consensual learning. And that is a, a idea, a meme, a a tagline that I have repeated so many times in my career, I, I feel like uh, I just need to say, you know, scream at the world once again. This is your phrasing of it, and it's it's the best way to, to think about it. And, and I think that there's so much tension there in, in what you just described. 
with parents deciding that they're going to unschool their kids, you know, before the kid's even born. And the kid, you know, ideally, you know, thrives in that environment. But there can be situations where kids want to go to school and, and their parents are like, no, we're not sending you to school because it's going to ruin you. And maybe the parents are right. But, you know, how different is that from, a, you know, a kid who says, I really want to unschool because my mental health will drastically improve. And the parents say, no, that will ruin you. You know, we won't even give it a chance. And there's something that that's non-consensual in, in each of those uh, situations. Right, absolutely. And I think, um, I don't know that, that I coined the term consensual education. It was a term that people were throwing around in, in my orbit in Vermont um, back in, I guess, the 90s. Um, but I do think, like, it's, it's interesting. Holt actually didn't like the term unschooling, although he did more than anybody to popularize it, right? He, and I think in, there's some passage where he said something like, like, he's defining what he means by unschooling, and then he says, which we should really just call living. Yeah. But then he goes on with unschooling. And recently, I forget who it was, but there's like a long, uh, pretty widely reblogged uh, Twitter feed about problems with unschooling. And um, um, maybe you can track that down and link to it. I can yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and one of the things he says is that like unschooling, like a lot of sort of um, like anti, like anti-framed uh, movements, it sort of is is in a, a, has a bad selling point just from the name. Um, whereas like talking about consensual education in a culture that, that, you know, purports to value consent in many different ways really puts the opposition on the back foot because, you know, they're obviously like school is compulsory education. There's no question about that. Um, and if, if the problem is framed in that way, it's both much broader because it covers things like college and like schools that people want to be going to. Um, and it also, I think, rhetorically, it's much more powerful because it, it builds in, rather than a critique of schools, it builds in, like, what are we, what's the value here? What are we really value? Yeah, agreed. Okay, let's zoom, zoom out to your life again, Ethan. Do you feel like you've made any big mistakes? Do, it, and we can just keep this in the, the realm of, like, learning stuff and, like, gaining knowledge. Do you feel like you missed any opportunities? Um, so this could be like you had an opportunity to like study under a certain person or to go work with a certain organization or to go on retreat. And when you look back, you're like, oh man, I could have really learned a lot more by, by taking X path instead of Y path. Yeah, sure. I mean, I feel like a problem with regret narratives always is like, you know, you don't know, you, you, you make a decision for some reason and it's hard to go back in the what if game and be like, okay, well, what if I had made that decision differently? Like I would be a different person in various right. ways. Um, certainly I have a student who, you know, last night I was talking about he's going into Swarthmore, which I did for a semester. Um, and he's like a perfect candidate for doing that. Right. So looking at, at him, I was like, you know, what, well, what if I had like stayed at Swarthmore? It's like, but I would not have done that. And I would not have been happy um, doing that. I would have probably been like kind of scarred by that process. Um, so, but in terms of like the regrets that are obvious to me that I think are, are pretty relevant learning wise are learning outside the academy um, in a self-directed way, like kicking around resource lists and saying like, oh my God, I need to go read Moby Dick because it's an important book or whatever it is. Um, uh, you know, I need to go read Wealth of Nations. Um, the, 
you can waste a lot of time. And it's very easy to look back on that afterwards and be like, um, yeah, this was, you know, I just spent six months reading stuff that like, I don't care about it. Nobody else cares about it. It's not useful to me. Anyway. <laughs> um, and that's the sort of thing where I believe in, in, in Grace's writing, she refers to that as having someone field your calls. And I think of that as like having a good recommender algorithm. Um, but, uh, uh, Someone who is in a, someone who you respect is in a position to say like you could maybe read this, but you don't need to read these things. Like that's it. If that is done well, that's a hugely time saving uh, possibility. And at the same time, if you have enough of those people and they're all saying the same thing, which is sort of a fail state of most recommender algorithms, um, then you create a situation where humanity as a whole just stops looking at certain things, and that's bad, right? One of the things that is a strength of self-directed learners is they often do spend a lot of time like trawling at the bottoms of ponds that nobody else is looking at in. So sometimes they're going to find some stuff. Um, but that's a very time consuming process. Hmm. Um, when we're talking about this interview, you imagined that you might be saying, here's how to not do this thing, kids. Uh, here's, you know, don't, don't do what I did. And uh, do you have any sort of generalizable advice to, let's say, teenage or college-aged um, unschoolers or self-directed learners? Es essentially, anyone who might be listening to this and thinking like, wow, Ethan sounds like a really cool person and I kind of want to you know, follow in his uh, footsteps. And, and I sure wish he'd give me some actionable advice for my life right now at age 20. Um. I'm going to have more, I hope, I hope I'm going to have more actionable advice after we're done with this survey, because right now, like, you know, I'm very, uh, reluctant to, to, uh, put up in, you know, on a marquee, like any of the claims that we tend to make in unschooling, like even something as basic as like people learn better when they're happy. Like, well, you know, I think so, but, um, let's get some data, uh, which we don't have, right? We don't have that. This was just dumb to me that we don't have that. But um, advice, advice for unschoolers. I think, I believe that people are usually better served in the long haul by, um, by pursuing the topics that they're interested in um, than they are by pursuing the topics that they've been told by sort of the old guard, the orthodoxy, are the ones that, that they need to be studying. Um, that's my bias. And I think that there's a middle ground that, you know, if you can find a great mentor or a great teacher who, who understands, like, where you are and, like, has a, has a vision of where the world is going and, like, what's going to be important in the future and so forth and how you might fit into that, then, yeah, that person might have, have different insights. But just a sort of like dead hand of like, well, you should study coding because it's all going to be AI in the future. Like that, that sort of stuff get, tends to get outdated very quickly. Um, and if you're studying something that, that you love, you're going to enjoy it. You're going to be probably in better mental health. And you're, I think you're probably going to learn better. Um, and that, I feel like that is deployable in a lot of different situations. But this is very general advice. And I don't know if it's true, but, um, but I want to find out. Yeah, so definitely take the learning journeys survey, everyone. Link is in the description of this episode.
Okay, I want to wrap this up, Ethan, by talking about a few more things from your wonderful, wonderful newsletter. Um, first of all, something I learned from your newsletter, one of the recent ones, is that in downtown Bern, Switzerland, there is a large statue called the Kindelfresser Brunnen, which is uh, a man who is eating babies. And I got really disappointed when I learned this because I was briefly in Bern in 2018 for a day and I did not go see the statue. And you included a wonderful picture of the statue. It's, it's horrible. Um, but it's like, oh, that's, that's so cool that that's public art in, uh, in Switzerland. Uh, this specific fact, how did you come across this? How is this in your brain? How did you know that the statue was there? Well, I've actually spent a good deal of time in Bern. Um, and, uh, because my uh, Susanna, my wife, was um, um, for a while involved in organizing conferences that were actually sort of like month-long uh, seminars that would occur in Bern, previously in Munich, Germany, um, and uh, people would come from all over the world, and I would like to come along and uh, cook sometimes, but mostly I would just like write and code and like hang out in Bern, and. Um, at that time, I was still blogging rather than like writing a newsletter, um, and I, I wrote an article um, about what a fascinating city Bern is. It's it's a very very quirky city. Uh, you wouldn't get that impression necessarily in like a one day visit, but um, uh, there's like as you come in from the north on the on the autobahn or whatever it's called, there's like a two way sign as you enter the sound. It's like Kunstmuseum Barengraben, which is art museum and bear pit. And that that's like, <laughs> to me, that's very iconic. They're like, yeah, there's an art museum and there is a pit full of bears. And it's been there, you know, 1500s or something. Um, and uh, uh, so, I mean, in walking around downtown Bern, I ran into that statue. But where I'm going in my head is that, of course, you know, Bern's like a uh, uh, golden boy. Um, Einstein was living in Bern in the downtown, what's now the downtown. Um, in 1905, the, the Honest Mirabilis, when he wrote, you know, the five papers that basically transformed modern physics. And, um, and you hear that story a lot. And the story about like how at the time he was just sort of working as a clerk in the patent office. And it was like, kind of like, like, seems like there's one way to tell the story in which it seems like Einstein was in a kind of intellectually deprived scenario, right? Um, yeah, he's, he he's a cashier at H&M and, and just starts writing theory. Right, totally. Um, but if you actually go to his apartment, right, um, first of all, he's surrounded by these weird statues, right? Like there's like the the guy eating the kids and like all this other stuff. Um, there's he's right up the road from the bear pit, right, which was at the time still like you know, a pit full of bears. People would go there and be horrible, <laughs> captive bears. Um Bern is there's a very fast river going through Bern, and it's uh the Bernese swim in it constantly and like dive into it. And so today, like there are like white-collar workers who will like go to work with a dry bag and like take off their suit and like swim across the river. And there's little changing booths on either side. Um, there's like goat farms that worked in between the blocks and like little children's like playgrounds everywhere. So this is like, it's very rich uh, urban landscape. But if you stick your head out the window at Einstein's place, right? He's flanked by two enormous clocks, like on either, on either end of the block, right? And with like, you know, old medieval, iconography around them and so forth um and uh and in light of you know like reading like his papers on relativity and the sort of obsession with the clock and as a symbol of time and it's like 
what happens if you accelerate a clock and all of this stuff. I've never seen anyone write about this fact that like Einstein was living in this like clock like uh, infested, you know, street and also was in a city where it was, it's just like, strikes me as really thought provoking in a place where it's really easy to think. Um, and I think that that question of like the, the, the sort of the city as a whole or the, the context, the farm as a whole or whatever as uh, a, a type of education, um, that's, I think that there's like a lot of work to be done. Okay, next thing I wanna talk about from your newsletter. Here's something that you wrote. I'd love for you to elaborate on it. You said that naming Darwin, Huxley, and Spencer as the three founders of evolutionary biology is sort of like naming Max Planck, Niels Bohr, and Deepak Chopra as the founders of quantum physics. Explain. <laughs> well, because one of these guys is not like the other, I would say that it, Spencer, um, Spencer had an enormous fan club in the 19th century and to some extent still does. Um, he also, as some of my readers pointed out, I would like to say, has uh, like really like crowd-stopping sideburns. Um, <laughs> but um, but Spencer sort of took the ideas of Darwin. Um, I don't want to rehash that article, but um, but the concept of evolutionary biology uh, became like both was a metaphor and like became a metaphor for lots of stuff downstream, including concepts in economics and sociology and so forth. Um, and, and I would say in education, right? Like there's, it's certainly possible to talk about say unschooling in a way that sort of relies on a naturalist and evolutionary metaphors. Um, and there's lots of trouble with those metaphors and Spencer in his own lifetime sort of turned them into uh, a kind of a cult. Um, and people, he's a guy who, he wrote so much stuff that people can, um, find almost anything you want in his writing um, and can you know, defend him or critique him on, on those grounds. But he certainly, to my mind, was not a serious scientist in the way that Huxley or Darwin were. Is the implication that the same is true for Deepak Chopra? Well, I guess, physics? I guess, I guess I was going in that direction. Listen, I share your bias. All right, <laughs> let, and let's wrap it up with uh, one other thing that you, you wrote about that I'd love for you to elaborate on. You created a short list. You know, sometimes you have these long flowing articles and then sometimes you just have very short lists that are just, and then, you know, it goes on to the next thing. This is one of those. You wrote that there are 10 fairy tales or folk tales that are least <laughs> likely to become Disney movies or edgy erotic retellings. And uh, as a few of the examples you give from Brothers Grimm, you say the mouse, the bird, and the sausage. Uh, I would like to know why this is not likely to become um, a Disney movie or more to the point, an edgy erotic retelling. Because of the name. I think it's because of the name. The mouse, the bird, and the sausage. I, you, do you, do you, you disagree? It sounds like it, it, rules, it rolls off the tongue like Mulan to me. All Except, right, uh, in German, it's Mauschen, Vogelchen, und der Bratwurst, which, you know. <laughs> what about Hans Christian Andersen's The Galoshes of Fortune? That more or less sounds like Aladdin to me. And Auntie, Auntie Toothache, that is ripe for an erotic retelling. It's not, though. If you, have to, you have to read Auntie Toothache. Auntie Toothache is horrifying. And I, I have this like, soft spot for, for Anderson because if you read Anderson chronologically, like you start at the beginning and like you go to the end, he's a fascinating character. But um, he starts out you know, in kind of like 
you kind of in a sort of a Disney version of, of like the fairy tale, right? Like everything's kind of happy and, um, and if it's not happy, it's not happy because it's like a Christian allegory of some kind allegory. Um, uh, but then like at something, you know, somewhere along the line, he kind of snapped. And the last like few stories that he writes in particular, like basically the moral is like, you'll never accomplish anything. There's no God, there's no afterlife. Like, we're all just going to die and like rot. And like, that's like his last, you know, few like contributions to children's <laughs> literature. Um, and Auntie Toothpick is right up in that zone. Uh, okay. I guess I need to read it. Um, all right. Well, I encourage everyone to uh, read some of the hebdomadary. We'll link to that and definitely take the learning journey survey. Uh, Ethan Mitchell, thank you so much for being on my podcast. Thank you, Blake.